Good morning. How's it going? It's doing well. Good to be with you. Excited to preach God's word. All right, let's pray and we're going to dig into it. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for uh, just this community. Lord, we know that as we commit ourselves to each other, Lord, that you shape us. Uh, you use this community to help us to be formed in the image of Christ. Um, and so, Holy Spirit, we invite you. We ask that you would help us to be sensitive to your uh, conviction of our sin, to your encouragement towards righteousness, and that ultimately we would see Jesus. Holy Spirit, that you would help us to um, see Jesus as beautiful, as worthy, as glorious through this text today. In this year, we pray. Amen. Your life is guided and prioritized by your vision of the future. Right? Your life, it is prioritized and it is guided by your vision of the future. The question is, what is your life being prioritized and guided by? Right? Is it a future job, a future income, a future relationship? In the text we're going to look at today, Peter fixes our vision first and foremost on our ultimate future, the future that all other futures are underneath, and that is the return of Christ. It's this future that sifts what we give ourselves to and how we respond to suffering. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 19. If you guys have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, open up. We're going to be there today. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it is to begin with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the godly, the ungodly, and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. So the title of our message, what we're going to focus on is living with the end in mind. Living in light of the end. And so there's two topics that we'll be talking about, right? With the end in mind, what is our priority? Our priority ought to be relationships. And with the end in mind, how do we encounter suffering? How do we approach it when we suffer? And the text calls us to rejoice in our sufferings. And so before we dive into those two points, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about uh, the, uh, the end of all things that really frames the entire passage, right? The end of all things is what sets everything else in its right perspective. And so Peter starts out and he says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that 
statement. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, how ought you to live? What ought you to do? And so he's asking, what kind of life ought we to live in light of Christ's return? Right? Your view of the future, it affects the present. And so the question is, what is directing your life? What story are you living in light of? You see, all of us, each day we wake up, we're living in a narrative, in a story. The question is, what story are you living in light of? What is the the future, the hope, the good life that that story is portraying and that you're living in? There is a future end and renewal that is coming. And that day, it should frame your life in the story that you live in light of. Now, the, the future return of Christ, it is a day of both justice and of healing. It's a day that is uh, terrifying and also beautiful, right? It's terrifying because it's the day of revealing, right? The day that Christ returned is the day that everything will be revealed. There is no sin. There is no, nothing hidden, no secret that is hidden that will not be made known, right? The king of all, he comes and he exposes It's a day that there will be justice against evil. Now, that's in some ways terrifying, but it's also yet beautiful because this day of return, it's not just a day of justice, but it's also a day of renewal. It's a day of healing. It's a day of resurrection, right? It's the the end of all things is the day when he comes and he destroys the brokenness and the corruption, the systems that set themselves in opposition to God and where he resurrects all that is good, He brings healing to this world. And so Peter says, this is the end of all things that we are to live in light of. This this imminent return where the king comes back and puts everything in order. And he says, this is at hand. Now we might think, well, wait a second, Peter. (laughs) You know, this is 2,000 years. Like, what do you mean? The end is at hand. The end is near, right? Now, the Bible talks about that there's two ages, and it views history a little differently. So it says that before Christ is the old age, and that when Christ is coming, right, he says that he's bringing a kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It's here. I'm bringing it. And at the resurrection, the new age has begun, right? It's this overlap of the old age and the new age is coming. And so the kingdom is, is coming. And so Peter knew that Ultimately, Jesus, uh, he knew that he wouldn't know the exact day or hour that Jesus was going to return. Okay, and, and the beginning of Acts, uh, Jesus has resurrected and he's coming and the disciples are like, all right, it's happening now, right? I mean, you're resurrected, you're bringing the kingdom, you're going to take down Rome. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the day or the hour of my return. And so Peter remembers that when he's writing this. It's not like Peter knows, well, three years from now, Jesus is going to come back. And so, hey guys, it's near, we need to get ready. No, but he does understand that there are things that are happening, that the gospel is spreading, that Christ could return. And that ultimately every new day is a day that Christ's return is closer than the next. And so he's urging us to live with that sense of expectation, that sense of urgency of the return of the king. Now, Peter knew and was aware of cynicism and criticalness, right? When people hear that, well, obviously he was wrong, And so Peter had that same kind of cynicism and that same kind of critique that was posed to him back in his day also. And he wrote 2 Peter 3 in response to that kind of cynicism, that kind of doubt. And he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we await and we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we, we see that he says a couple of things here in response to the cynicism and doubt. Well, it's been so long, Peter. Of course, Christ isn't coming back. You're just deluding yourself. He says, one, God's timeline is different than our timeline. God has a different approach to history than what we think. The second thing is he says, God is patient. And aren't we glad that God's patient? I know I'm glad because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's patience. What if you, and so he, he frames this as saying, Christ's return is, is not because he is you know, not there or because he's delaying, it's because he is patient. And his patience is that he would draw more people in and that there would be repentance And so we should be grateful for his patience and his grace as he is drawing people in. But he he goes on, he says, there will be a day where the king will return and this old order, it will be burned. It will dissolve like fire and that burning that is intended to be fire that purifies and what is good is resurrected, is remade. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, this is the future that we are to live in light of. This is the reality that our lives should be framed by that should put everything else into perspective as far as what do we give ourselves to? How do we encounter suffering? And so want to look at that as far as how does it set our priority, especially in regards to relationships. And so he, he says, the end of all things is hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And he goes on, he talks about that we are to how to interact with others, namely love. And so you notice these two things, he talks about our relationships, primarily being God and then others. And you notice that he starts with God and then he talks about how that ought to affect our relationship with others. Because hear this, loving God is seen in how we love others, right? If you say that you love God and yet you do not love other people practically, he would say that you are deluding yourself, that you're living a lie because your love for God will practically show up in people's lives whom you can actually see. He goes, it's very easy to say, I love God, but if you don't love people, then you're showing that there is not a love for God. And so the same thing is that how do you have the power to love people, right? You don't have the power to love people or even the movement or motivation to love people outside of a love for God because God's love towards you, it moves you to stick around in people's lives, to, to move closer to them, rather than saying, well, people are hard and people are difficult, so I'll see you later, and just step over and leave them beside. And so God's love, it, it moves us and changes our heart to where we actually practically have the power and the ability to love people. Now, he talks about prayer first. He says this, he says, that we are called to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. 
Now, wait a second, Peter. Shouldn't we pray in order to be self-controlled and sober-minded? Well, yes, prayer helps us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. But hear this. There's a mindset that leads you to prayer, and there's a mindset that says that prayer is frivolous and not worth giving my time and effort to. Right? There's a mindset that will directly lead you into a life that is marked by prayer, and there's a mindset that will lead you into a life that says, well, prayer is ancillary. It is you know, not really worth giving myself to. And he talks about that this mindset is marked by self-control, and it's marked by being sober-minded. Right? We, we talked about that we all live in a narrative. We all live in a story, and the gospel is the true story that we're to live in light of. And it is to guide us and to control us. And he says that we are called to be self-controlled, right? The opposite of being self-controlled is being controlled by others. And there are a ton of different narratives in our culture that are vying for our attention, our loyalty, our time, our money. And they're constantly inviting us to say, here's what the good life looks like. The good life looks like having this job. The good life looks like having this spouse. The good life looks like having this money, this house. The good life looks like, you know, having these experiences, there are so many narratives that are inviting us into them to th- help us to think differently about what the good life is. And he says, no, the mindset that leads to prayer is one that has self-control and stays focused upon what is the true story. What is the true narrative? What is actually going on here? And what is worth giving our lives to? And then he says that we are called to be sober-minded. And what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, sober-minded, it means to be free of impulse. And so the opposite of being sober-minded is you know, right? Being drunk, being drunk-minded. It's being totally impacted by different influences. And if you've ever been around somebody that's drunk, there's a couple things that mark them when they're drunk, right? Usually they don't have a very clear awareness of themselves. And so that's marked by either being very loud and belligerent, you know, or they just don't understand what's going on. They perceive reality very differently. Oftentimes they have way more confidence in their ability than they should, right? They think, oh, I'm going to crush this game, you know, or they decide that they should do some things. It's like, you really shouldn't do that. And normally, you wouldn't, but you don't see how you're operating right now, you know? And so he, he says that that is what it means to be, to be drunk. And he says that not only can we be drunk on alcohol, but there are all these different influences that our mind can be swayed and addicted to, whether it's entertainment, whether it's sex, whether it's money, whether it's relationship. He says, there are so many ways that your mind can be not sober, not clearly thinking, not understanding who you are in reality and perceiving what else is out there, right? Because what alcohol does and what being drunk does is it numbs you. It numbs you to the reality and it, it hinders you from seeing who you really are and what's really going on around you. And so he says that the life, the mindset that will lead you to be marked by prayer, that will lead you to prayer, is one that understands and sees who you truly are and sees what reality really is. Why is it that having a sober mind will lead you to prayer? Well, first, if you actually are thinking clearly, then you'll understand your own brokenness. If you actually see what's really going on in your life and who you really are, you will understand the brokenness that's in your life, and you will very quickly realize that you can't fix or save yourself. And so it will lead you into a state that says, I need Christ. I need a savior. And so this is why he urges, he says, there's a mindset that will lead you to prayer and is one that realizes that you cannot save yourself and that you need a savior. And it also realizes that there is a God that is real, that is loving, that wants to intercede and act on your behalf, that will meet you in this, in this life, that he will meet you through prayer. And so he says that we are called to be sober-minded for the sake of our, our prayers. 
Now, this leads us directly, right? When we give ourselves to a life of prayer, this is where the Lord meets us. He intercedes for us. And he, honestly, this is where he brings power and passion for ministry in our lives is through this life of prayer. And then he transitions. He starts talking about how does this impact our relationships with others? And in verse eight, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And this text, it comes from a reference in Proverbs 10, 12, um, where it says, hatred stirs up contention, but love covers all offenses. And so what does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean, right? There's, it doesn't mean that love atones for sins, right? There's only one person's act of love that atoned for sins, and that was Christ, right? Christ's act of love on the cross set an atonement. It paid for our sins, therefore covering all the sins of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so what Peter here is talking about, though, is that love for others, it overlooks their sin. It overlooks their offenses, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't have this long list waiting for somebody to mess up and be like, all right, well, last week you did X, Y, and Z. Instead, love, it overlooks offenses. It overlooks the sin of the one loved. Literally what this means is that when he's saying, um, when he says love covers a multitude of sins, he's talking about that love, it stretches out, right? It's a love that is stretched out in full view. It's, it is as stretched out as possible. And this means because when you love people, it's going to stretch you, right? When you love other people, you actually get into true relationships with them and you start to see the brokenness and the difficulty in their life. It stretches you to love. And what do I mean by love? Because honestly, we throw that word and that word is used oftentimes in our culture without any kind of substantive meaning. And what love I believe means is it means it is a commitment of the will that engages the heart and acts of good towards another person. I'll say that again. Love is a commitment of the will, right? It is a commitment of the will because oftentimes when you need to be most loving, you don't feel loving. Amen? Anybody, right? Anybody have that where you're like, I know I should love this person. I don't feel like loving this person right now. But that's the exact moment where you actually need to love them. And so love is not primarily something that we do when we feel like we ought to because you won't be very loving practically very often. And so he says, it's a commitment of the will, but it doesn't just skip the heart, right? Love doesn't just say, well, listen, we're going to be cold and impassioned. I can't stand you, but here you go, right? Love, it goes through the heart. And how does it do that? How does this commitment of our will to engage on the good of others, how does it engage our heart? Well, it first starts with understanding how Christ has loved you. When you begin to understand your own brokenness and your own sin and you see how Christ has loved you, how he has forgiven you, how he has engaged you and pressed in, in spite of the times where you have denied him, where you've rebelled against him and you've spurned his authority and his love and yet he forgives you and yet he presses into you, when you understand that and that is the lens through which you love other people, it will begin to melt your heart. You'll begin to have compassion for even those that frustrate you or wronged you because you see how much worse have you done to Christ and how much more has he extended grace into your life. And so this commitment of the will, it goes through your heart and it, it starts to break it. It starts to mold it so that you have compassion and care for those that you're act, 
actively trying to do good to. And it, right, so it doesn't start there, just a commitment of the will and an engagement of the heart, but it moves into acts. Loving people looks like actually doing good for them, engaging in their lives, listening to them, knowing them, understanding them. And this is, this is difficult. And he's talking, notice he's talking to the church. He says, love one another. And so he's talking about the community of God. He's talking about the church and how we're to love each other. And this is difficult, right? Because he said, it's very easy to live in isolation and think that you're a good person because all you see is yourself. When you move into community, you press into community, not just on a surface level, but you actually dig in. You start to get to know other people and you start to see, wow, they have selfishness or they have these issues or they have that issue. And then sometimes you start to realize I have issues too. And you have to start facing those things. And it can be scary and it can be hard. Because here's the thing, if somebody says that they love you, but they don't really know you, it's superficial and kind of awkward, right? You're like, that's great. You don't really know me. Thanks, I guess. If somebody knows you and they don't love you, it's one of our deepest fears. It's what we worry about so much is that someone would know me, see my brokenness, see my hurt, and that they would reject me, they would refuse me. But you see, to be, to be known and to be fully loved, it is what will transform us. It reaches down and it moves us and it changes our heart. And this is how God has loved us, is that he knows us fully and he loves us completely. And this is the kind of love that he says, receive it and show it. Show it towards one another. And this kind of love, if the church, if we show each other this kind of love, it is beautiful. The church becomes beautiful to those outside of it, right? People that don't know Christ or they're exploring, they see that and they say, I want that, right? I want, a, I want those kinds of relationships where people see my brokenness, they see my sin, and they don't just wash over it, right? They don't pretend it's not there, but yet they also don't turn from me. They don't kick me out of their group. They don't say, well, good riddance, go find somebody else. I'm gonna be around nicer people or people that don't have those kinds of issues, right? They say, no, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, sin is sin, it is brokenness, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving in your life, I'm here. I'm here to pray with you, to love you, to care for you, to walk alongside, to open my life with you. Jesus says that people will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And so this is what it looks like to love one another is that we press in, we open our lives. And, and practically, we're gonna get in. He, he shows us some very practical ways, you know? What is loving each other with boots on look like? How do we actually do it? Well, he gives us two things. First, he says, Loving one another looks like showing hospitality, right? Verse eight, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then he talks about, as you've received gifts, show it. And notice, so the first thing he says is show hospitality. How do you, how do you love people? How do you love people in the church practically? Open your life to them. Open your life to them. Don't keep everything secret and tight in it. C.S. Lewis, he talked about that love requires you to open, that if you, if you wanna keep your heart safe and never risk it, it will shrivel up and die. Anytime you open it, you, you open it to risk. And, and so he says, show hospitality. What does hospitality mean? Hospitality is turning strangers into friends, right? Hospitality, it's turning strangers into friends. It is opening your life, not just your home, but your home, your finances, your gifts, your abilities, your time. It is opening these things and welcoming people in. 
Now, obviously, we know in the first century, hospitality was huge because they didn't have inns. They didn't have hotels. If they did, they were very expensive. And so if you wanted to travel to visit anybody, you were entirely relying upon somebody else's hospitality. But hospitality is no less important now. Right when people walk through these doors, they begin thinking, am I known? Is there someone that's safe to be with? Do they care about me? And so hospitality is this opportunity where we open up our, our lives. And in that, we, we practically show our love for Christ. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25 about um, the end of the age and, and how the end of the age is coming. He's separating the sheep and the goats. What? The sheep are his people. The goats are those that are not his people. And as the sheep are coming in, he tells them, he says, you're coming in. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they turn and they say to him, when did we do these things to you? And he says, when you did these to the least of, when you did these things to the least of these, you did them to me. So not only is hospitality a way that we love one another, but it's also practically a way that we experience Christ. When you open up your life in your home, you are actively inviting Christ into your life to begin experiencing more. And so if you want to experience God more, very practically, open up your life. Invite people then to be a part of it. You'll begin to experience Christ more by doing so. The next thing he talks about is how do we express love is serving through using your gifts. Now, if you're a Christian, God has given you spiritual gifts and it looks different. He talks about here two different types of gifts. One is speaking and then one is serving. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. You can do both, but he's kind of talking in broad areas and he's saying both of those types of gifts, they are given and there is intentional way that they're to be used. They're to be used to serve other people, right? These gifts, they're an act of grace. God gives them freely and he says that it's a varied grace. And so it's not that we're to say, well, man, I really wish I had that gift or if I only had that gift. He says, no, God has given each of us all unique gifts and he says that we're called to steward them. What is a steward? A steward is someone that has been given something in order for the betterment of the person that's given it. And so as we receive gifts of God, whether it's speaking, whether it's practically serving, he says that we're to do that as an act of love. And, and have you ever had that where you, you do something that you're good at and you do something you're passionate at, you kind of hit your lane and you just, you feel purposeful in it. You feel joy and passion as you're giving yourself to that. And there's, there's something that God has made that when we give ourselves to our, ourselves, when we live lives that are revolved around our own aims, it's empty and it's hollow. Have you ever felt that when you live for just yourself, it feels empty. It feels as if you're giving yourself to something that doesn't matter. And so God has given us gifts in order that we would serve each other, that we would encourage and build up others. And so this is a very practical way that we, we love other people. And so in this first point, he says, how are we to live in light of the end? We're to value relationships. We're to value the people in the church. We are to love practically by opening up our whole lives, inviting people in, not keeping them at arm's length, and we're to use the gifts that God has given us in all its varied forms to love and to serve people. And that when you do that, you will experience purpose and joy. Now, the last point is, in light of the end, how do we encounter our suffering? Right? In light of Christ's return, how does that put in perspective the way that we suffer? 
Now, no one likes to suffer, right? I mean, I don't like to suffer. Do you like to suffer? I don't think so. I mean, we don't like to suffer. You know, pain, loss, and ridicule, they're not aspirations and dreams that we hope for. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what I really want? I want to suffer tomorrow. You know, nobody thinks about that, but there are realities in the world that we face, right? We, we will, it's not a matter of if, but we will suffer in this life. And so when you encounter suffering, what will your mindset be? How will you encounter suffering? Will your mindset be, why me? I don't deserve this. Why didn't they get this treatment instead of me? They deserve it more. <laughs> it's not worth it. Instead of those mindsets, will you instead choose to have the mindset of Christ? Will you choose to encounter the suffering that you will face with the same mindset that Christ had? One that says, I can use even this as a way to draw closer to God. Even in this, I can still have joy. Not because of the suffering, right? It's, we, don't, we don't have joy in the suffering for suffering's sake, is because this suffering is a doorway, it is a pathway through which we can get closer to God, through which we can experience union with him more. And so there's a couple points that I want to talk about in this passage. And I, I really want, if you go or if you're going through a time of suffering, of difficulty, dig into this place. Dig into verses 12 through 19 because there's so much here that will buoy your soul in the midst of suffering, allowing you to have joy and hope as you face difficult times. And so a couple of truths that will help us out. First, he says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Your expectation in life will frame your reaction to things. And so if you go into this life expecting, I will have suffering, suffering is going to come, it will go a long way in helping you to encounter your suffering, right? There have been saints throughout the thousands of years that have suffered far worse. And so if we have this expectation that my savior, the one that I follow, was betrayed, was crucified. Why am I expecting as a follower to not have suffering? It reframes our perspective and it helps us to encounter it with a, a more honest reality. The next thing I think is important is that if we understand that this suffering is a test, right? He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And so suffering is, it is a test it is meant to reveal the foundation that we are standing upon. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 7. He says that there are two men and they go out to build a house. And one of them builds his house upon the sand. Maybe he was in Florida. All right, he came out and he built his house upon the sand. It looked good. Maybe it was warm. And the other said, I'm going to go out and he built his house upon the rock. Now notice, you see, this, that's where the differences stop. Is It's literally the foundation that's the only difference is everything else, the storm comes upon both houses. And so it's not as if, well, hey, Jesus, I've followed you. And so there should be no more suffering in my life, right? Like you're going to just heap blessings and prosperity upon me because I've given you my life. <laughs> not the following of Jesus. <laughs> he, he shows here, he says, both are going to encounter storms. And he says, the storms, as the storms come, it reveals the foundation. One house is standing, the other one falls. And so he says that when you encounter suffering, it has this ability to reveal what your life is built upon. It, it removes blinders that you have because oftentimes we think that we're standing on a foundation when perhaps we're not. Peter had this wake-up call when he thought his life was built upon Christ and he ended up denying him, only later to then build his life upon the rock truly. 
And so God uses suffering as this revealing tool in our life to say, I want you to build your life on what matters, on what lasts, on what is enduring. I don't want you to build your life on things that will frivol up and disappear, on things that don't matter. I want you to give yourself to the thing that ultimately matters the most. And so if you aren't building your life upon the rock, suffering will reveal it. And if you're right now in the midst of suffering and you're seeing that maybe my life wasn't built, it's an opportunity. You see that God places in his grace suffering in our life as an opportunity for us to turn more and more and build our life more and more upon the rock of Christ and his foundation. Now notice he, he puts some qualifications here about suffering and what we are to suffer for. He, he encourages us that we are to suffer for following Christ. We're to suffer for righteousness sake. You know, he says, we're not to suffer for um, being a, a criminal. And he, motiv- he says here, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, as an evildoer or as a meddler, which is, you know, uh, should be fairly obvious. He says, you should suffer for walking in holiness. Um, and he says, if you are suffering for those things, right? Because let's be honest, all of us have faced suffering for our own brokenness, our own sin, our own poor choices. There's still grace for that. But he says it's a different kind of um, response. When you're suffering for the actions that you have committed, what does God want you to do in that situation? Well, first he wants you to respond by opening and, and accepting the consequences of your actions. Right? If you're suffering for a crime or a sin that you've committed, the first place to start is accepting the consequences, accepting the, what's going on. And the second thing is it looks like being honest and confessing your brokenness. It looks like being straight up. This is what's going on. And then it looks like repenting, changing your mind, turning around and, and fighting against the lie that you believe that has led you into that situation. And then it looks like doing acts of restoration. If you've harmed someone, if you've hurt someone, we're called to do what we can to, to make that right with others. And so we're not called to suffer for being a criminal, but we're called to suffer for righteousness sake. And the next thing he talks about is that there's a judgment that begins now, even with the house of God, and that there's an ultimate judgment for those that do not follow Christ. Now, what is in the world is he talking about with this judgment of the house of God? A lot there, but the simple part of what's there is that the judgment that God has for believers is not one of condemnation. I want you to know that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no longer any condemnation for you. You need not fear the judgment or the justice of God because Christ has faced that and he has embraced it for you on your behalf. The judgment of God for believers, it looks like one that purifies us, right? God is bringing out what is evil. He's sifting it through so that what remains would be pure, that we would be made more into the image of Christ, but there's a reality of God's judgment and his justice against evil, against those who refuse and do not obey the gospel as this passage talks about. And it is one that, that should mark us and urge us towards evangelism. It should, um, in, in real ways, humble us all as we realize that there is a day, there is a fixed time where this world will be judged. And so, in our suffering, how do we respond to it? He calls us to rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because we know that it can be a means of our union with Jesus. When we suffer for his namesake, we feel the injustice of this world even more. When you, have you ever been wronged and hurt and you feel it and you long for this world to be made right? 
And that's what he's saying here is he's saying that when you suffer injustice for Christ's sake, that it makes his returning even more beautiful, even more glorious, even more imminent as you long for things to be made right in this world. He ends by saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering doesn't give us an excuse for doing evil. As we suffer, we are still to entrust our souls to God and we are to do good. I want to finish with this hymn. It says, there is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. Through present sufferings, future fear, he whispers courage in my ear. For I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would help us to live in light of your return. That we would prioritize our lives accordingly. We would live lives marked by love, love for you and love for others. And that you would frame our suffering. That it would wouldn't be wasted, but it would be used to draw near to you. And that you would, even in the midst of difficulty, fill our lives with joy as we realize it's an opportunity for us to see and know you in a deeper and a more profound way. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen.